0: It is uh it is exciting to see so many people here this morning and we still have some that are out and we miss them uh dearly but uh it is exciting to see so many visitors this day I sound just a little bit loud to me thank you all right it's good it's good to have you here to study first peter with us as we continue looking into it and I I pray that you have been uh challenged by it from last week and continue to be challenged today to excel still more as we look into God's Word. There is an outline over here, Denny is actually walking over to pick up if you want to pick one up at this time, and then we are going to pray and ask for God to be glorified through the proclamation of the truth this morning. If you would, go ahead and bow your head with me and let's pray. Father, we come to you again through the merits of Christ, and we come to you humbled by your your love and your grace and your truth. And Father, we know that you have given us these, these things for a divine purpose. And part of the purpose in giving us these things is to declare your worth to the world through our changed behavior and through the proclamation of our lips when people ask us about that changed behavior. Lord, I pray that I can help us understand that, help us grasp that from Peter. I pray that we would be transformed And prepared for what you call us to do today through Peter. I pray that we would be prepared to be persecuted. For the glory of Jesus and the good of the lost. Father, I pray that in doing so, we would we would be sanctified. We would be secured in our relationship with you because we know that we belong to a Lord who didn't put us here accidentally. You placed us here at this time at this place for a divine purpose so that we can declare your worth display the glory of your Son. We pray that you would help us to do that today as we look into Peter, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There's some of you here that are visiting, and what you're going to have to do is play a little catch-up today. The outline will actually help you do that somewhat. Um, We have been going through the book of 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter... You've, you've learned, I hope, by now, uh, up to chapter 3, it's a very practical book. It's a book that first deals with doctrinal understanding of who God is and His sovereignty and His rulership over us, and then it applies to our life and our relationship in the church and then our relationship to the world around us. It causes us to be lived differently when we understand who it is that saved us and secures us. It changes our relationships toward government and toward Gentile unbelievers and toward our spouses in difficult situations. God's word and promise in chapter one prepares us to be a witness in the face of opposition. That's what we see happening as we come through chapter three. We're being prepared for godly living, but for a divine purpose. And that godly living sometimes leads us to persecution. Well, let me just say this. If you live godly, it will lead to some form of opposition. It may not be the kind of persecution we read about last week where the man was set ablaze for being a witness for Christ by a Hindu nation but it may lead to the kind of opposition that you face on a practical daily basis because of your preparation and your devotion to Christ. Last week, the Apostle Peter commanded us to think about some difficult questions. And in 1 Peter 3, 15-17, Peter's going to continue asking us difficult questions, make us think about difficult questions. Peter's going to ask us this morning, are we prepared? Are we prepared to give a reasonable biblical defense for what we hope in today. Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to give a defense for your faith? Now, in the context of Peter, he's saying, are you prepared to do this at all times, always, at this very moment? If someone came in and asked you and your life was on the line, would you profess your reason for believing in Jesus and why you are a Christian? Could you do it? Could you articulate it at all times to anyone who asks you, because that's what Peter is commanding us to do by God the Holy Spirit's inspiration here today. Last week in 1 Peter 3:15 or 13 through 15 A, Peter began to prepare us for this by commanding us to do two things that are on your outline. He commanded us to be convinced, be convinced of God's promises when we are blessed to suffer for our Lord Jesus. And he commanded us to be devoted to the Lord Jesus from the inside, from the heart, outwardly as a witness of his lordship in our life practically. You see, those two go together. Being convinced of what God has called us to do and who God is and how he has saved us and how he has called us out from the world and set us apart for his glory will help us understand the devotion we should have to our Lord and our Savior and that devotion starts inwardly and changes us in a way that is visible outwardly. So people will see that we have a hope that is within us. It's just amazing when I read this text that Peter is talking about people seeing your hope. And then he says, if they see it, now you need to learn to proclaim it. That, in other words, your behavior matters. Your behavior is transformed by what's going on by God's sovereign grace inwardly in such a way that the world around you sees your difference, And they want to know why. And so part of the question you ask yourself today is, are people asking me why I'm different? Are people asking me why I hope in different things? Are people questioning that today? If not, maybe you're not as convinced and as devoted as you can be and should be. We're going to read the text here in Peter three, thirteen through 17. We're going to look primarily at 15b to 17 this morning. In the text, we read God speak to us here in uh, verse 13 through 17, saying this. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, for doing what is right, for doing good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You're blessed. You're highly privileged. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but set apart or honor and glorify and exalt the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one. As master, Lord, over your life, the beginning in your heart, he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, he says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone, always to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. for it's better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. In First Peter 3:15 through 17, Peter goes on to prepare us for persecution by commanding us to do two more things. Number three, be prepared. Be prepared to defend our hope in the Lord Jesus for our sanctification and for evangelization. Just keep this in mind, defending the hope, defending hope here equals faith, defending the doctrinal understanding you have of your faith, defending the truth, defending this is for our sanctification and evangelization. God doesn't need to be defended here. The Bible doesn't need to be defended here. We are are doing this for our good. God is allowing troubles into our life to cause us to defend what we really hope in. It's to examine our own hearts. And as we do so, it opens the door of evangelization in the world. Peter also prepares us for persecution by commanding us to, number four, be undefiled or unstained while we live in this world. And that's a result of being devoted to Jesus as Lord. He's calling us to be undefiled. We must keep a good conscience before God and men as a witness of what our Lord has done to us within, right? The hope that lies within us is evident by our undefiled life, our behavioral change that starts from the inside out. Listen, sanctification always begins inwardly as an act of thankfulness for what God has done to us Internally, spiritually, it's a response. Walking in obedience, walking in purity is the response of a regenerated heart. It doesn't get you a regenerated heart. You cannot earn God's favor through obedience and through legalism or purity. You are given the new heart that pours out of it the kind of life that is undefiled, that is a reflection of Jesus as Lord over your life and in your actions. Peter begins in 315b to prepare us for persecution by number three, calling us to be, or commanding us to be prepared to biblically defend our hope in the Lord Jesus for our sanctification. Look what it says in 15b. He says, always being ready. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. Give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And notice what what he says here. Peter, Peter says, always, notice that, circle that, highlight that, always, at all times, whenever, in season and out of season, when it's popular to stand up for Jesus and when it's not popular to stand up for Jesus. Always, in the face of opposition, be prepared. Be prepared to biblically, rationally explain or make a defense of your faith, of your hope. That is in the Lord Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is always be ready to know what you believe and explain why you believe it. That's what you're being called to do. You do that for God's glory, number one, and for the good of others, number two. You see, evangelization, evangelization here, is, is the act of giving God glory, declaring his worth and his, his greatness in Christ. And that has a way of sanctifying the Christian, setting us apart and causing us to give thanks to God. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword. It evangelizes the lost. So when you're always prepared, you're always being sanctified. You're always being set apart for God's service so that you can declare his worth and greatness to the world around you. And that produces evangelization. And again, when he's calling us here to defend our hope, we can equal that to defending our hope in God or our hope in Christ's work. But again, what he's not saying is he's not saying you need to be ready to make a defense for God because God needs you. That's not what he's saying. A lion inside of a cage, a lion inside of a cage, doesn't need to be defended. It needs to be uncaged. It needs to be turned loose. The Bible and God himself doesn't need to be defended. It needs to be uncaged. It needs to be unchanged. The truth about God in His Word needs to be unchanged. And that comes through us proclaiming it with faithfulness and with zealousness in our heart. We need to unleash the truth for our good and for the glory of God and for the good of others. Peter is saying the defense here is for our sanctification. It's Again, it's preparing us to produce grace-driven evangelization. That's what he's speaking of. In 15b, further, he goes on to say, be prepared to make a defense. And the word make a defense is apologia in the Greek. It means give a reason, give a reasonable defense, a reasonable explanation, an articulate, biblical, eager defense of our Lord, His grace, His sacrifice, and all that is worth living and suffering for Him. You you need to be able to, to give a reason for why you're willing to do that. You need to be able to understand how to articulate these things. Give a defense of these things. Make an apology for these things. And that word apology doesn't mean you're sorry. Apology, and if you think about it, when you make an apologetic statement, you're giving a reason for the thing in which you have just done. That's what it means to apologize. So this word apology in English comes from the word apologia, to make a defense. And this was actually a legal courtroom term in Peter's day. It was to make a defense for a reason for what you did or didn't do. He's using it in a broad sense here. It basically means that when we're asked about the hope that we have in God that actually transforms our behavior, transforms our life, we need or we should be able to give an apologia, a biblical defense for what it is that transforms us and calls us into obedience to Jesus. Can you do that this morning? Can you give a biblical defense of why you're a Christian this morning? Can you give a biblical defense of why your life is being transformed? It's not because of anything you have done, is it? You need to be able to give a defense of God's sovereign grace in election, in purification and sanctification that He produces in us through His Spirit who indwells us. 1 Peter 3.15b, Peter's telling us, Basically, that every single individual Christian who has been regenerated, everybody who is not just professing it, but actually regenerated by God's Spirit, is to be called to give a defense. Be prepared to answer everyone. You see that in the text? He says, make a defense to everyone. That means exactly what it says. Everyone and anyone. And in particular here, he's talking about your persecutors. You need to be able to give a defense to those that... That see you acting differently and either mocking you or they're either upset with you because it's showing their sinfulness, you need to give a reason for that. You need to give a biblical reason at any moment. And what he's saying is in this address to you this morning is every Christian here is to be an apologist. Every one of you are being commanded by God himself this morning through Peter to know the truth that saved you and be able to articulate it. This is not for just the pastor. This is not for just the leader. You are all theologians. Theologians simply means you study God, you love God, you you live for the glory of God, and you want to know more about Him. And the more you know, the more you can articulate to others about Him. You're all called to be theologians, every single one of you. And you can all do that by God's grace through His Word. The same tool that God uses in my life to equip me to teach and to preach is the same tool that you have at your fingertips this morning. The same Spirit who dwells in me dwells in you also. The Spirit who illuminates the truth. You can do this. And it's important to always be prepared. Here's why you need to always be prepared. It would be nice if, if somebody told you next week people are going to come to your house and they're going to confiscate your Bibles and they're going to arrest you because you're a Christian. So you need to get ready and explain to them what you really believe in so that you will glorify Jesus in that moment. And so that's, that would be easy if that worked that way. It doesn't work that way. Persecution for your faith and questions about your faith isn't scheduled usually. You need to always be ready. When the guy at work says to you, Why do you keep doing the things you do that way? It makes me look bad. You need to be able to give a defense and a reason. It's not because I'm better than you. It's because I answer to someone who's greater than me and you. And give a biblical reason for that this morning. We need to be able to do that at any moment. Peter knows himself what it's like to not be ready. You understand that? Peter knew what it was like. Experientially, he felt what it was like to not be ready to defend his Lord and his Savior when he should have been. He had made big boasts. He'd made big promises to Jesus in the garden. I will defend you. No one will hurt you. I will protect you. And when it came down to it, he abandoned Jesus. Look what it says in Luke 22. I should say this. He abandoned him temporarily because Jesus had not abandoned him eternally. So there was a hunting down of Peter by God's grace, and even this trial that he went through, Jesus Himself told him here in Luke twenty-two. And not in this text, but Jesus told him preceding this that when you are sifted, when you go through the trial, it's going to be for the good of your brothers. So even this difficult situation, God was using this suffering, according to His plan, for the good of the church, for the good of those who are believers. Yet Peter, Peter wanted to be ready. And he wasn't at the right time. Look what it says in 2254. Having arrested him, that's Jesus, they led Jesus away and brought Jesus to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. And there's the first indication of a problem. The one who had promised that he would not leave Jesus aside now has distanced himself from Jesus because he is not as convinced as he should have been of his Lord's work, of God's plan. So he's following at a distance. This always leads us to trouble, too, doesn't it? When you make big boasts about your love for Jesus, but then when it's going to be costly, you back up and you get at a distance because it's not really going to be safe if you really back up what you have professed. So avoid that so that you would be ready. Be constantly ready to stay close to Jesus and defend his glory. Verse 55 says, After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him, too. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Oh, what a a betrayal. What a betrayal. I mean, Jesus's disciple, Peter. His dear brother. I don't even know him. Now, what's 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 more impactful to me is what happens at the last of this passage. When he's saying this, Jesus hears him. Jesus is there within earshot of him. A little later, another saw him and said, "You're you're one of them too." But Peter said, "Man, I am not." Now he's denying his association with Jesus and the followers. After about an hour had passed. Another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Notice this in verse 61. Then it says, The Lord Jesus, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Could you imagine the gaze that caught Peter's eye when he looks up and sees his beaten Lord Looking in his eyes, saying, Peter, this is what I warned you about. You need to be prepared. Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, Before a rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. (sighs) Peter knew what it was like to not be ready. Are you ready? Are you ready to speak up for Jesus at school, at work? In your home, in public as a witness to give a testimony for the hope that is within you, no matter what it would cost you. I guarantee you this. Peter was ready after this, after he wept bitterly and he repented of this. What did Peter do on the day of Pentecost? He stands amongst the people who had crucified the Lord and said, you are the ones who are responsible for this. He was ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within him at that point. And you know why? It's because he realized what Jesus had done for him. A realization of what Jesus has done to reconcile you like he did Peter will make you eager and articulate and an apologist. You'll be ready because you know that it was Jesus that hunted Peter down after this. Jesus sought the reconciliation. Jesus went after the sinner. Is is that that the case for you? He came after you. And when you realize this, how could you not desire to be ready to proclaim this to the world around you at all times to anyone who asks you? 1 Peter 3.15. Peter's calling us to always be prepared. It says 15b, to make a defense. Make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, this is an act of evangelization. That's what this is. This is an act of evangelizing. And in the context, what he's saying is basically you need to be able to give an account or a reasonable explanation for your changed behavior. So God calls us. First chapter of Peter tells us that God planted us or it's dispersed us. It means it's a, the word spore comes from the word seed. and We get the word seed from that. He planted us where we're at in difficult places. He put us there and he transforms us internally to shape us, to conform ourselves to the image of Christ so that we would glorify Him in a way that the world around us would see us so they would come to us and see our behavior and say, Tell me, how is this? How is this happening? When you are being reviled, when you are being persecuted, when you are being opposed, mocked, made fun of, why is it you persevere in righteousness? Tell me. I don't get it. There's no reward worth, reward worth this. And you tell them, I already have the reward within me. This is my reward. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of response for that, I live differently. And I want to tell you about that. I want to tell everyone who asks about this hope that is in us. We're commanded to be always ready to declare and defend the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's what Peter's saying. I mean, are your, are your actions and your attitudes being changed by the gospel today? If they are, are you being asked this question? Are people seeing your changed behavior saying, I want to know about this hope that lies within you? That hope will transform everything about you. It transforms your thoughts, your intentions, and your actions outwardly. It controls you where legalism could never control you. It keeps me from going places that the Bible doesn't even say that I should or shouldn't go. It it keeps my heart in check because it's the Spirit of God who's dealing with me. I don't even have to have a black and white outline here. God and His Word has taught me through Scripture that this is wrong. Throughout the text, I want to know what will please Him, and I want to live accordingly. And I want to be prepared when I'm asked about that difference in my life to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the gospel that changes you. Legalism doesn't change you, it just conforms you outwardly, it doesn't change you inwardly. The gospel changes you inwardly, and is what legalism could never do outwardly. It causes you to be a reflection of Jesus, even in your failures. Even when you sin, you look back to the cross where sin was atoned for, and you give thanks for Jesus there again. Are you prepared to defend this gospel today? That's Peter's question to us. The good news is you can become prepared. It's not really that difficult. If you're a Christian, it's not difficult. If you're an unbeliever today, it is difficult. But by God's grace, I pray that that changes today. You become prepared to defend your hope by simply studying and applying the Word of God daily. It's the Word of God that reveals that your hope is in the work of Jesus, not yourself. It's the word of God that changes you from the inside out to love him and to live for him and desire his glory to be displayed through your life. It's love for Jesus that changes your behavior and causes men to ask you about that hope, that transformation. Studying and applying the scripture also displays your devotion to Jesus as Lord of your life. If you're not devoted to studying God's word to give God glory, to exalt and exalt in him. You're you're not doing what God has called you to do this morning. You should be filling your heart and your mind with God's word so that your life will be transformed as a reflection of his grace. You want the world to see your savior, don't you? I mean, isn't that why you live is the point, men, to Jesus? Because, listen, we're all a vapor. We're all going to die we're going to pass, but the gospel of Jesus is eternal. And you have something inside of you that the surpassing glory is, is beyond you. It is of God because it is his message. But he, is, he has planted that seed of his word in you to be a reflection to the world all around you. But you need to know his word. You need to feed on his word. And you need to apply that that you feed on to your life. Your hope will be transformed by this. Your hope will be encouraged by this. Your hope comes from knowing this in God's Word. In God's Word, you see that our hope is bound up in one thing and one thing alone His sovereign grace. That's your hope. Your hope's not in works, your hope's not in yourself. Your hope's in God's sovereign mercy, who calls dead men to life. You can't save yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You're dead in your sins and your trespasses. It's impossible for you to atone for your own sins. So God initiates the atoning, reconciling work through His Son. That's your hope. Your hope needs to be articulated with your life's actions and with your words. Your hope is bound up in the work of God the Son who suffered in your place as your substitute. Your hope is found in God Himself, God the Father's plan who produced this good work for you through Jesus, through His suffering. The gospel is the reason for your hope this morning. That's what you need to be able to articulate. That's what you need to be able to defend is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you convinced of the gospel this morning? Let me ask you this. Are you devoted to the gospel this morning? Because if you're devoted to it, you're going to glorify God through what you do with it. Are you prepared to defend it today? Defending, again, Is for our sake in this regard and for the sake of those who need to hear the good news that's within us. You realize God allows us to to be the, the witness in this world and even allows suffering to come into our lives to basically point men to the goodness of grace that is found in Jesus when we go through suffering and we do not fail to give Him glory and seek His strength constantly. We have a hope that lives within us that carries us through all kinds of suffering and carries us through that suffering, boldly proclaiming God's glorious grace because we know our suffering one day will end, right? Jesus suffered for us so that our suffering would cease. We will live eternally in his presence. That is our hope. God allows these trials and these tests that come into our life for a purpose. We need to understand that. Because in the, in the trials, the dross, again, I mentioned this last week, the dross of loving this world is burned off of us. And what it boils it down to is, do you love Jesus more than stuff? Do you love Jesus more than your life? If you do, your life will reflect His goodness and grace to the world around you. That's what your hope is, and you need to be able to proclaim that. God brings those tests and those trials into our lives to display whether our faith is strong or if it's weak. And then he causes us to be transformed by that grace and strengthens us. The more we know it, the more we understand it. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6. By the work that he does through suffering, our strength, our hope is increased. You realize that when 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 nothing there is nothing to manipulate and to manage your life other than Jesus. Your hope will increase because you're not a slave to anything else. He is your master. You're devoted to him and you live for him. And that whatever happens to you, you know, is of him and for him. And he's working this out so that you would have great joy in him. Look what it says in six. In this you greatly rejoice. You greatly rejoice in the power of God that protects you for a day of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, tests of your faith. See, the test here coming from God, God brings the test, God brings and places you in places where you're going to go through struggles and suffering to burn off what you're what you don't need to have clinging to you, but clinging only to the cross of Christ. He does this. Verse seven says so that the proof of your faith, the the worthiness, the weightiness, the glory of your faith, the proof, the purity of your faith which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you go through the trials, as you go through the suffering, it comes in and and it wipes away everything else that would distract you from Jesus. And your faith begins to glow and to shine and produce a a reflection of Christ to the world. And it displays your love and your thankfulness for God's grace and for the one He sent to save you. Verse eight says, "And though you haven't seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of doxa, glory, praise. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your your souls. The assurance of your salvation comes through going through this time of struggle and trials. It causes you to be sanctified and set apart unto Jesus." And glorifying God through that act brings evangelization to the world around us. When you go through trials, and I'm sure some of you are going through trials and suffering right now. And when you're going through those trials for doing what is biblically right, for simply obeying the word of God, when you go through trials for that reason, and you find in your heart rest and peace and joy and rejoicing, you know that that trial was a gift from God and you are blessed. Because now your heart is turned to your Savior and not your circumstance. You are here as an alien citizen. A temporary assignment. Until the day you, the one you don't see now, you will see face to face. You will give an account. And that's not a fearful day for the Christian. It's a day of rewards. The Bema seat is a day of rewarding. He rewards us for the things that we have done through His power, which is absolutely astounding to me. To me, We don't even do it on our own. It's through the, the grace of God that we do good works. Yet we are rewarded over and over and over again by our good God. When we go through suffering, we need to remember that. God is watching over us. God is protecting us. God is allowing this, according to His will, for a divine purpose. Suffering simply does this. It erodes our love for temporary things. And it opens the eyes of faith to that which is eternal and real. By faith, we cling to the eternal. By faith, we trust in God's love to carry us until the day that our faith becomes sight. You know what day that is? That's the day you see Jesus face to face. And you hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. Until then, we're pilgrims on this earth. Until that day, our hope, our faith, is in an unseen Lord Jesus. Though we don't see Him, we love Him. Because we love Him, we live for Him. And we proclaim Him. And we prepare our hearts to proclaim and defend our hope in His gospel. That's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to be prepared for that. If you look at the outline, you need to be able to explain your hope. We need to be able to explain our hope, number one, in God the Father's reconciling plan Look with me at 2 Corinthians 5.17. I have good and bad news for you this morning. I have a long sermon and a short Sunday school lesson. Okay? And they'll balance each other out. But I want you to get this. Here's the point. If if I'm going to follow faithfully what Peter's commanding me to do here, I have to command and direct you to do exactly what he's saying. Learn how to give a reason for your hope. And here, here are three things that you need to know. You need to defend these three things. You need to be able to defend this. If you can't defend this, I am concerned whether or not you even love or understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this defense is of your faith. This defense is of your trust in the gospel. If you cannot articulate this, maybe like Benjamin Warfield or Jonathan Edwards, that's okay. But you need to be able to defend this and understand this biblically and be able to to take people and explain this compassionately. Because this is your hope. This is so important to understand this. this. This one here, this one hope right here. Number one, our hope is in God the Father's reconciling plan. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of God is what Jesus would call it. 2 Corinthians five, seventeen through 21 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God. Highlight. God who reconciled us to himself. God did the reconciling. God reconciled us to himself through, through, through who? Through Jesus, through Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one appointed by God to go through suffering in our place. Through him who atoned for us, substituted his life, his righteous life for our unrighteous life. Through him. We have been reconciled and given a ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ. God was initiating. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the proclamation of this this gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We are spokesmen for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg You on behalf of Messiah, Jesus Christ, be reconciled to God. He made this verse here is astounding verse. this is this is double imputation here. This is a fantastic theological truth here. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, Jesus became our substitute. Our sinful life was imputed to him on the cross, but his righteous life was imputed to us as well. We have been reconciled through the work of God. Verse 18 says, these things are from God. And it says, God is the one who reconciled. There is nothing there about man doing anything. This is monergistic. This is the work of God alone. Isn't that amazing? God is the reconciler. Do you think about our father that way? God loves to save sinners He loves to seek us. He loves to redeem us. You know why he does that? Because it displays Jesus. It reflects the love of his son, the sacrifice of his son. God, it says here, is the designer of salvation. God is the one who works it out. God is the one who worked it out in eternity past. God is the one who will bring it to completion in the end. So that we can say, Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory for salvation, not to man. God initiated our salvation. And God also initiates our perseverance in salvation. God gives us salvation to bring Him glory. This, this, this goes back to Peter. It would make no sense whatever if you said that God loves you so much He saved you and He's going to leave you in your sin and your sinful behavior. That wouldn't be love at all because He says love is the work of His Son, the reflection of His Son. And so for God to love you, God must also change you. Transform you, conform you. It is not love to say, once saved, always saved, live like hell. That is not love at all. What a weak God that is. The God I serve, the God I know, he saves, secures, sanctifies, sets apart, because Jesus' blood is powerful, it's cleansing blood. It's blood that actually makes the sinner thankful and praise-filled and want to desire good behavior that would reflect his glory and his work. It's, It's the product of a thankful heart. But it's also God's plan. Look at Ephesians 2. We often talk about God's predestinating plan to save sinners. And this is so true. This is the greatest truth of Scripture, I believe. God is the one who initiates these things. But God doesn't leave us there. God goes even further He doesn't just save. He secures and he sanctifies. He sets us apart for a divine purpose. He reconciles what Adam did wrong. Adam didn't do good. Adam failed to obey God. So what did he do? He sent the second Adam, Jesus, to do all the good for us. And then in us, through the reconciling love of God, we are being conformed daily to the image of his son to do good works. Look what it says in Ephesians 2. Actually, let's go down to 2.8. For by grace, that's God's undeserved favor, you have been rescued, saved, soter, through trust or faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Now, first and foremost, this reconciling work is nothing you can brag about. Man contributes nothing but sin to salvation. You're dead in your sins, according to the first seven passages that talk about that here. You're dead, you're incapable, and yet God initiates a love act towards you through His Son coming to die in your place. So it's by, by the favor of God, through faith in what He has done through Jesus, you're saved, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Notice verse 9 it says, It's not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one can say, I came to God because I made a decision. I made a walk down the aisle. I did something. No, you cannot say that. You may have done all those things, but that was after the fact. Regeneration precedes faith. And it's the result. Repentance and faith is the result of regeneration. And here's what the result looks like practically in verse 10. If you have truly been saved by grace through faith in Christ by God, you understand that we are his workmanship. You have a divine purpose in the world. You were created You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We walk in them so that we can bring honor and glory to our Savior who did all that it took to redeem us, to reconcile an ungodly man to a holy and righteous God. And out of thanks for that, we live differently. Sanctification is the response of a thankful, forgiven heart. That's your hope. Your hope is God saves God secures and God sanctifies. He is at work in you to do His good pleasure. That is to honor and glorify His Son. Isn't that good news? If you struggle at times, aren't you glad when you're struggling that God is the one convicting? The Holy Spirit convicts you and conforms you, brings you back to the Word, and there you find hope in Jesus and find that your forgiveness was complete and you respond in thankfulness and obedience. When you fail, you're still Secure because of God's reconciling work. Your second hope is in God the Son's reconciling action. That's what it says in 19 through 21. 19 through 21 there in Corinthians. It says, namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Jesus or Christ, be reconciled to God. Now notice 21 again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Purpose clause. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you see the connection again? The reconciling act produces a change in the one it was granted to. You were reconciled through the work of Christ on the cross, the one who was sinless, took your place so that you would become the righteousness of God. And that, that's, that, is, that is positionally and that is going to be practically too explained and displayed in your life. Understand this. The reconciling act and the reconciling action of God the Son, Jesus, is amazing. And it should, it should have a, an amazing effect on us when you understand this. This is what you're making a defense of. This is what you should be able to articulate Your hope is in the reconciling plan of God and the action of God the Son. God the Son, understand this. You need to be able to say this clearly. God the Son went to the cross to declare His love and power over you and for you. John 3.16 talks about God so loved the world that He sent His Son. What did He send Jesus to do? Jesus came to atone or to appease God's righteous wrath against our sin by becoming a sacrifice in our place. And Jesus is the only one who had the power to do that and live. He was the only one who had the power and the purity to die in the place of sinners and rise again on the third day to declare all those who died with him are justified, just as if we had never sinned, declared righteous in God's sight through Jesus' imputed work on the cross. Jesus on the cross being cursed by the Father because of our sin is pleading our case, loving us to the very end, and then rises on the third day to declare that we belong to Him and that He has the power over sin and Satan and death. And all who are in Christ now will live. That is your hope this morning. Your hope is in God who designed a way for you to be saved. And God Himself stepped in and did it for you. That's your hope. God the Son upheld the justice of God the Father. Against our sins. Our sins demanded death. And Jesus said, I will take their place. Jesus comes into the world. He takes the place of unholy men on the cross. And there, the sinless one becomes sin for us. So that we can be a child of God. Saved and secured from God's wrath because of the work of God the Son. This is our hope. Our hope is this. Our hope is that. For everyone that Jesus died, every single person that Jesus died for, you are guaranteed to be raised up with the one who was raised for you. Every person Jesus died for will be raised up for eternal life. That doesn't mean every single human being that dies will be raised up. It simply means this. All that Jesus died for, all that the Father gave to the Son, will be raised up on the last day. Do you believe that? Is that your hope this morning? Do you believe that that's you this morning? Is that your hope personally? Look at John 6. I don't want you to presume that I'm making that up. John 6, 37, states this clearly. There is no greater testimony of hope for me here than this. I have hope. That God has initiated a plan. God has initiated an act. God has done something to secure me eternally. And that I know without a doubt in my heart today, my hope is secure in Jesus. And I will be raised up to newness of life because Jesus was raised up in my place. He died in my place. He lived in my place. And he promised that this would be the case for all those who he died for. Look what it says. All that the Father gives me, will come to me. That means every single person that was given to God the Son by God the Father will come to salvation. That's why, the, that's why you can be so bold in your evangelization and defending the truth of the gospel. You know that those who are going to be saved will hear and respond in faith and repentance. He says, and the one who comes to me, the one the Father gives me, the one who comes to me, he says, are equal. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Well, why would he cast you out? The Father gave him to you. He's a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. That's what you are. Do you think about that? I mean, we, in and of ourselves, we know that we're wretches. We know we're sinners. But through the work of God's Son, we're called saints and we're beloved by God. Because through us, His greatness is magnified because of our sin. He He shows how great His power over us is. He says, Jesus says, I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Now, notice this. this is a very important phraseology. The will of him who sent me is this, that everyone, all, all the people that verse 37 talks about, all that he, God, the father has given me, God, the son, I lose nothing. All that he's given me, he says, I raise up on the last day. All that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of the Father, or of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes, trusts, puts their faith in Him alone, will have eternal life. And I, myself, will raise Him up on the last day. How much, how much greater is that? Not only are you given to God the Son by God the Father, but God the Son says, I'm going to come and I'm going to be the one who, I'll raise Him up. All that have died in Christ will be raised by Christ Himself. That is my hope this morning. You need to be able to articulate your hope. This is the gospel. I don't know what gospel you may have heard growing up. I don't know what gospel you may have heard down the street. But I know this is the gospel of hope. This is the gospel of God. God reconciles us through His sovereign plan. God reconciles us through His actions. He initiated it. Not only that, He secures it. Thirdly, our hope is in God, the Holy Spirit, who seals our salvation. He seals it. Look what it says in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed, you were you were set apart, you were you were secured in Him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's God the Holy Spirit. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. With the view to the redemption of God's own possession. To the praise of His glory. You are saved by God. Secured by God, here it says. For His glory. God pursues us. God sanctifies us. So that we would reflect His goodness in the world. That's my hope. Saints, our hope... Simply this. My hope is this. I hope this is your hope. Hope here means absolute assurance, confident assurance. My hope is that I don't have to appease a holy and righteous God. I can't. God the Son did it for me. That's my hope. God the Holy Spirit secures me. That's my hope. That's what we hope in. That's what we need to be prepared to make a defense of this morning. Are you confident of this? Are you devoted to this truth? This is the hope that will carry you through all kinds of suffering. Your life is in Christ. Let them take your goods. Let them take your life. You have Jesus, and that is enough. And that is eternal. You know, all your stuff isn't eternal. Your life isn't eternal. God's love for you is eternal. This is the hope we have within us. This is the hope that actually transforms us, transforms our actions, and even transforms our responses to persecutors. Go back with me to 1 Peter 3, 15b, part 3. I don't know, somewhere there toward the end of the text. In verse, verse 15, just let me read the whole thing. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for this hope, for the hope. The hope that's in you. The hope that is in you. you, you need to understand this hope is placed in you and you're supposed to actually do something with it. And it says you are to basically defend it in such a way that it is done with gentleness and reverence. And what Peter is saying here is not only what we need to be doing is making a defense, but how we need to do it is with gentleness and with reverence. That's very important this morning. Peter is telling us that a Christian should be able to explain his faith practically and evangelistically and compassionately with gentleness and reverence, not abrasiveness. So many times people will be offensive in the way in which they present the good news or the way in which they defend a truth from Scripture that they become the offense and not the gospel. Listen, the gospel is going to offend sinners. That is a given, that is a guarantee. But you shouldn't offend them by your actions. You shouldn't be offensive. You shouldn't be abrasive. You should be compassionate because that's what God was towards you and me. He was gentle and he was was careful in caring for us and sending someone to proclaim truth to us. Peter says we need to have a gentle or a tender and a gracious attitude when we explain the gospel, when we defend our faith, our hope. And this word gentleness simply means this. It's the word meekness, if you could also translate it meekness. You know what meekness is, right? Jesus was the, the meekest man of all. Why? Well, Jesus had the most power of all, and it was under control. Meekness is power under control. If, if you have all power and strength and might, you know whether or not you're, you're wise and how you use it. Jesus was gentle. And at times, he was direct, but he knew when to be which. And so do you. You need to be careful to be strong, but yet under control. And, and that strength under control comes from this. The more you're, you're aware, the more you know intimately God's word and your confidence is in God's word, the more meekness and gentleness you can display. The, the people who get into apologetic arguments and, and just toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose, yeah, 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 this kind of stuff, those people, their confidence isn't in the word of God. Their confidence is in their ability to argue. We need to be able to know what the Word of God says and sit back and watch God work. Unleash the Word. Unchain the Word. Let the Word of God convict and convert sinners, not your arguments. Now, it doesn't mean we don't argue. It doesn't mean we don't debate. It doesn't mean we don't do those things. But He tells us how to do so. Do so with gentleness. Don't do so with condescension. Don't do so with an intention to win a fight. You want to lead people to Jesus. You don't want to to win a fight. You know what? You may not win every battle anyway. You may lose a whole lot of battles before God opens the heart of the person that you're speaking to because you have skillfully and gently handled His Word accurately and with reverence. That's what we're called to do. This gentleness has to do with how you handle God's Word. Remember, you're an ambassador for Him. How you use this is a reflection of the one you're speaking of. If you're talking about grace and you're the most ungracious person in the world, it really goes against you. It really doesn't help. If you're going to talk about mercy and you're not merciful, then you're really defeating your purposes here. Yes, truth should win. I understand that. But you know what? One who has received mercy and grace should be changed by it when we teach others. The Apostle Paul knew this, and he illustrated what it means to make a defense with gentleness and reverence. Let's look at two references. First, in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. He says, the Lord's slave, which is an accurate translation of that term, the Lord's doulos, slave, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And I mean, that happens when you, when you get into an apologetic argument with an unbeliever, with an atheist, with an agnostic, with a Mormon, with a Jehovah's Witness, with a Roman Catholic, you have to exercise God's grace here. You have to be able to do this with kindness. And you you need to be able to explain it accurately, able to teach doctrinally. You need to know your Bible. Take people to scriptures to let God argue with their heart. God wins. In the end, whether they submit now, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He's right. But right now, you let the Word of God and the Spirit of God deal with their heart with patience. Even when you're accused of wrongdoing, even when they say you you have an ulterior motive, which you do, you want to see them converted. You want to see God glorified. That's your, that's your ulterior motive. And just tell them that up front. Yes, I have a motive. I want to see you transformed by God's love and grace. But most of all, I want to see God glorified through your life. He says, we're to, we're to do this carefully. Verse uh, 25 says, do it with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, he, he, do it with gentleness, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Gentleness and reverence God may use with an accurate understanding of the text to bring someone to repentance and faith in Jesus. Listen, you don't get people in the kingdom. God does that. He may use you as an instrument of grace And just make sure that when he's using you, you are full of grace and mercy as you proclaim the truth. Listen, the truth is going to offend the sinner. It offends me as a sinner. It offends me and corrects me and rebukes me. And then it comforts me and it heals me and it brings me life. That is God's grace to us. We need to handle that gracious word carefully. Look at Colossians. Colossians 4, he says to do so here also. Colossians 4, 5 and 6. I want you to know something. I I am going a little bit long. I really am. And and here's the thing. I wouldn't do so if I didn't think this was important. Richard Baxter said, I preach as a dying man to dying men. And I want you to understand that's my conviction this morning. I think this is that important. I don't know who's going to walk out of this building today and enter into God's presence. And if you go out this morning, I want you to go out giving hope and glory to God. That's my desire. So I want you to see this this morning, how we should handle this hope how we should handle these truths carefully i think that's more important than our time schedule here in colossians 4 5 and 6 he says conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders isn't that just a compassionate act of god i mean god could god could rain down wrath and anger on his enemies but instead he makes us like jesus he causes us to be compassionate toward outsiders that could really be translated enemies Making the most of the opportunity. I mean, when an enemy comes, you shouldn't see an enemy. You should see an evangelistic opportunity. I can tell them about Jesus. I can tell them about forgiveness. I can tell them about grace. I can tell them about God's sovereignty. I can tell them about hell. I can tell them about God's wrath. I can tell them about mercy. I can tell them they need to repent and have faith and believe in Jesus. And they can have hope. That's what I need to tell them. This is an opportunity. So to have a right opportunity, you need to do what he says here. Let your speech always be with grace. God's favor the favor of God, the unmerited favor, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. When you do do evangelism, when you do an apologetic discussion with someone, not everybody you talk to is the same. Some people I talk to are soft and tender, and you can crush those people if you're not careful. Instead, you need to Gently lay truth upon truth upon truth on their lap and let them see it and it unfold and see God glorified through it. Some guys are hard as rocks and you do have to get toe to toe with them. And you have to debate and you have to talk and you have to even raise your voice at times. But you come back to a gentle and a reverent attitude and when you you do that, they see that you're not there to beat them up. You're there to win their hearts for Christ. It's very important. When, When Peter and Paul both would do evangelism, when they do apologetics, they, they handled God's word carefully, gently, reverentially. That's the word there back in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, handle it reverentially. And what he's talking about when he says, do this with gentleness and reverence, reverence means you need to have a healthy fear of the God who spoke this truth. If, if you're going to use the Bible as, as an apologetic means to, to rebuke someone, you need to remember that it's God who's speaking, don't abuse it. Don't use it for your own agenda. Don't use it to get your way. Don't use it to make your point. Use the way God intended. If you're using the word of God to evangelize the lost, you need to do so with the compassion of Jesus. You need to talk about heaven with joy in your heart and hell with tears in your eyes. If you believe those things. We need to handle it carefully. And so that means we also need to handle it reverentially when it comes to applying it to people personally. We're applying this truth for the good of the lost and for the glory of God. Not to beat them up with it. Have you ever heard the phrase that the Bible is, an am, is a hammer that many an anvil has, has basically been worn out on? The Bible's like a hammer. The Bible's like a hammer that anvils get worn out with. But listen, the Bible's not a hammer to beat people up with. The Bible is a hammer to build them a shelter, to build them hope and faith in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible is for. Peter prepares us to do that here in this text. Peter's telling us to be ready at all times to use the truth, even to those who revile us. Uh, use it for their good and use it gently to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ, even when they persecute you for what you're doing and what you're doing is good. You need to lead them to the truth that is found in God's word so that they would have the hope that you have within and do it gently. Carefully, even if they slander you, even if they persecute and mock you for doing what is right in the midst of your evangelization, in the midst of your pouring out your heart, they're mocking and they're 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 deriding you. They're They're coming down on you. They're ignoring you. You continue to persevere in this and you do so without fear because you know that God has called you for this very reason. To be able to do that powerfully, to be able to do that confidently, you need to be able to do it. Number four in an undefiled way. Be undefiled when you present the gospel. This is really important. If you're going to be a witness, an ambassador for Jesus, and talk about forgiveness, grace, love, and mercy, you better be exhibiting these things, and you better not have hidden sin in your heart. You better not have sin that is the reputation of your life preceding you. You'll ruin your credibility. You'll ruin your ability to actually get at the foot in the door if you're not living an undefiled life to some degree. Peter's telling us we have to keep a good conscience. And that word keep there has to do with the word maintain. Maintain a good conscience before God and men. That's the only way you'll be prepared to be an apologist. Standing up for the truth is a fearful thing. And if you have sin hidden in your heart, unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, you're going to be either a coward or you're, you're going to be hidden. You're going to be cowardice or you're going to be full of Excuses why you can't evangelize, why you can't give a hope. You're going you're to find a, a corner to hide in and you're going to say, I'm just a weak Christian, I can't do anything. Well, no, he's telling us, get rid of that, that excuse. Be undefiled. Verse 16 basically means be undefiled so that you'll have no fear of men, no fear of false accusations, no fear of slander. If you're living a life that honors Jesus and he's Lord of your life, you're going to be without fear when you face false accusations. He says, keep a good conscience, Verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He's telling us here to avoid fear of being reviled or fear when we're falsely accused or slandered or attacked or or fear when we're asked by our co-workers about the hope that lies within us. If you're going to avoid fear, all you have to have is a good conscience. If you're living a life that's bringing honor to the one you say is Lord of your heart, Lord of your life, then you will be without fear when people come and and you begin to share the gospel with them. You won't be afraid that they're going to find out what you were looking at on the internet last week. You won't be afraid that they found out you were cheating at work last week. You won't be afraid that they think that you flirt with too many people at work last week or that you cheated on a test last week. You'll have no fear and you'll have confidence as a result. You'll have confidence because you know that your heart belongs to Jesus. You're undefiled. And Peter says, keep this or maintain this. And listen, that's a daily work. This, Peter's not speaking of, okay, one time in your life, repent and don't do this again. Because you know you're going to do it again. He's saying, keep or maintain. That means daily maintenance. Daily work. But here's the good news. It's daily work, but the one who lives in you is reigning in you daily as well. It's a daily work of confessing your sin and giving thanks to God's grace that's found in Jesus. And that's evidence that he is present with you in the midst of all this. He's convicting. He's converting. He's sanctifying. He's working in your life for his glory. And a life that's ruled by Jesus will not be afraid of false accusations and slander. If you're living a, 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 continually repentant life because you're continually sinning, but you're continually confessing your sin to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us. He is washing us. He is protecting us. He is guiding us. If you're faithful to do that, no matter what they say about you, it doesn't matter because you know you have assurance that you belong to the Lord Jesus because He's reigning over your heart. If you're not confessing sin and repenting, you need to examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith because none of us can get by a day an hour without thought or deed or action of sin in our life. We have this enemy within us called indwelling sin. It's still there. It hasn't been purged yet. That will come when we're glorified and the body is changed at the resurrection. But until then, that enemy's there. And until then, that means we're going to be repenting and confessing daily and looking to Jesus with thankfulness for His atoning work. And that also gives you assurance. Do you see that? Recognizing sin, turning to Jesus... Turning away from sin, that is the work of God the Holy Spirit convicting. That is assurance of salvation. Verse 17 says, basically, that if you live this kind of life, if you live this kind of life, you you may or may not escape persecution. You may or may not escape persecution because God is working. God is working even through those who persecute you. It may be that God has a divine purpose, for your suffering that you may not understand. Maybe you'll never see. Look what it says in verse 17. It's, for it is better, even if you're basically accused falsely for good behavior. That's what he's talking about in verse 16. Your false accusation against you may actually be, be used in a way that is glorious. By the way, let's go back to verse 16 for just a minute. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame or may be put to shame. This is Peter's way of saying this. If, if you're living an undefiled life. And you're living in a way that would honor the Lord Jesus daily. Confessing sin, repenting of sin daily. And the people around you keep slandering you. Eventually, they're going to see that there's nothing sticking. And they will be ashamed of their false accusations against you. But the idea is this shame should turn them from their sinful accusations to repentance and faith in Jesus. This is the idea here. He's, Peter's not just saying, you know, do good stuff so you make everybody feel bad around you. That's not what he's saying. There's a divine purpose in this. You do what is an act of a clear conscience, a clean conscience. You do what God has called you to do. And if they slander you, let it be. Because God may use that later on to be a witness to their heart, convict their soul of their sin, and cause them to be repentant and have faith in Jesus. But even if that doesn't happen, verse 17 comes along and says, It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. So it doesn't mean you're you're going to necessarily get out of suffering if you do what is right. You may actually, according to God's will, notice that, it's very important. God is the one who wills it here. You read in in the Old Testament, in the prophets, you understand that God brings calamity and God brings good. God is sovereign. We don't serve a God who can't do. We serve a God who does and ordains all things for His glory. But it's better, he says, if God should will it that we suffer for doing what's right, Peter says it's better to suffer by the hands of men for doing what is right because that's maybe God's plan. God may use this in a way that you don't understand. Maybe you'll never see it. It may lead those who attack us to redemption. But most of all, I know this it may or may not lead them to redemption. But if you persevere in godliness and you persevere with a good conscience and you persevere in devotion to Jesus, This trial, this suffering that comes, will be used as a test for your devotion. This is a test of your devotion. If you persevere, not knowing that it's going to come out good on the other side, that it may be God's will that you go through this difficult struggle, being an apologist, standing up for the truth and being attacked for it, yet you're willing to do it anyway, that's evidence of God's grace working in you. It's a test of your devotion. And if that happens, Peter's telling us that we're blessed. We're highly privileged by God. The reason we're privileged is because if this happens and you're going through suffering and you find yourself rejoicing and exulting in the gospel of Jesus and glorifying God, you know that's evidence of His mercy toward you and you know that your life is now hidden in His sovereign hand. You're protected by God. Your hope is secure because it's in Jesus' love. Your hope is in what God has done to save and secure you. And listen, no amount of persecution, no amount of suffering can ever take that away from us. Nothing in this world can remove God's electing love and promise of eternal protection from us. Nothing can separate us from his love. One last text, Romans 8, 29. Now listen to the love of God in this text. This is what Peter would have understood. This is what Paul the Apostle understood. Our hope is secure in this. Our hope is secure that nothing in this world will change our position before God Almighty because Jesus has done something to secure us. Let suffering come. Let persecutions come. Let us exalt and exalt in Jesus while they come so that God would be glorified because we know that God is loving us, God is protecting us, and God is with us. Look what it says in 829. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, Being conformed to the image of Jesus will bring suffering because you're going to expose darkness. When you expose darkness, people who live in the dark don't like you. They didn't like Jesus. And suffering will come. But you're not self-righteous. You know that this is the work of God working in you. You know you're a sinner who, by God's sovereign grace, have been called to salvation. It says, you're being conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And those who he, these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what persecutor can be against us? What suffering can hurt us? What can the world take away from us? He who would not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Listen, folks. All things belong to God and all things in that sense belong to us now because God has called us to be his children and inheritors of his goodness. And one day when God comes and redeems all thing, restores all thing and brings about a new heaven and a new earth, it's yours in Christ. Verse 33 says, who will bring a charge against God's chosen people, God's elect? God's the one who declared them righteous, justifies them. Who is the one who condemns? I mean, this is God. God is the one who set you apart and called you into his family. Who can condemn you? Who can attack you? Who can accuse you of anything else but the love of God raining on you? That's all they can see. That should be a testimony. It's what you're prepared to display in your hope. It says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now we have God, the son, praying and caring for us even eternally. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation separate us? No. Will distress? No. Will persecution? No. Will famine? No. Will nakedness? No. Will peril? No. Will sword? No. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus, who loved us. For I am convinced... This is just an astounding two passages here. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and I love this one, nor any other created thing, and that would be you, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God who sent his son to take our place, to love us, to redeem us, Nothing can separate that from us. It's God who initiated it. That's our hope. It's God who promised it. That's our hope. It's God who will bring it to completion. That's our hope. Nothing can separate that. God saved us. Are you prepared to tell people about that? Are you prepared to defend this and declare God's love for you that's in Jesus? That's what you're being called to do this day. That's, that, that is what it means to be a Christian, by the way. It's to be one who believes and follows Jesus. And if you believe and follow Jesus, it's going to put you in a position to declare His greatness and your hope in Him. That's what I want us to be able to do. I want these truths to cause you to live an undefiled life devoted to the Lord Jesus as you walk here on this earth as pilgrims, as aliens. Because through your pilgrimage, through your transformation by God's grace and your actions, you will be a reflection of the Lord Jesus to the world around you. And God will be praised through that action. That's what we want to see happen in our church today. That's what I see happening in you already. That's what I see happening in the future of our church as we grow both in depth and in width. We thank the Lord for that today. And let's give Him thanks in prayer. Father God, we come to You today. knowing that nothing can separate us from your love, not even distractions, Father. We know that according to your will and according to your word, we have been we have been set apart in this life, not for just our own purposes, but for a divine purpose, to exalt and exalt Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior and be devoted and prepared and undefiled as we go into this world, declaring the goodness of your grace and the hope that lies within us. Father, I pray that as we got just a glimpse of our hope this morning, that we would have our, our appetites just teased enough, Lord, that we would go home, that we would, we would look into your word, and we would be amazed at your active love for us that is displayed in the scriptures and the active obedience that we are to display in the world around us. We pray, God, that that would be the challenge of our hearts this morning as we think about whether or not we are ready to give a defense and willing to give a defense for the truth that we love and hold dear to us today. And that truth and that hope is Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, for your willingness, your willing sacrifice that atoned for our sins, your willing walk of obedience in our place because we could never walk in an obedient way before God. We thank you for willingly going to the cross, willingly laying down your life to grant us new life, eternal life. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for sealing that promise and for securing us for all eternity. We give you praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Take about a 10-minute uh, break, and then we'll begin our class. We're going to be really short on our class today, but if you can, there's some... I think